Last Sunday morning in our adult Bible class, a comment was made regarding the Hadean world. And so that kind of helped to prompt this morning's lesson, which is entitled Hades and what happens when you die. You know, that question, what happens when you die, is a very important question. It is one that generates a lot of interest, obvious, for obvious reasons, right? It is something that the Lord did not give us a whole bunch of information on, but we have enough. And not only does it generate a lot of interest, it generates a lot of error as well. As some people try to make money off of other people's blatant curiosity, burning confusion, and maybe biblical ignorance about what happens when you die. And, and to make that point before we get into the lesson, I, I want to share with you two things. Number one, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness or greediness, they will exploit you, with deceptive words, for a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. There are always going to be those in the religious world who will, for the sake of greed or whatever else, seek to exploit people with falsehood. Simple as that. And so, on this question about what happens when you die, where do you go, and, and all of that, it has its share of those sorts of efforts as well. Back in January of 2015, there was an Associated Press article written by Hillel Itali, and it appeared in the Tulsa World. It was an article which a member of the congregation where I was then working clipped and brought into me. Yes, people still use scissors to cut, and they didn't paste, but they brought it into me. And I looked it up, and I actually have the website here. You can look it up if you'd like, but I want to read to you this story about people exploiting others on this question. I read, a best-selling account of a six-year-old boy's journey to heaven and back has been pulled after the boy retracted his story. Spokesman Todd Starowitz of Tyndale House, a leading Christian publisher, confirmed today that Alex Malarkey's, and yes, I kid you not, his last name is Malarkey. I, I, I'm not kidding, I've got the website, okay? Confirmed Friday that Alex Malarkey's The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, a remarkable account of miracles, angels, and life beyond this world, was being withdrawn from bookshelves. Earlier this week, Malarkey acknowledged in an open letter that he was lying, saying that he had been seeking attention. He also regretted that, quote, people had profited from lies. I did not die. I did not go to heaven, he wrote. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough, to which I would say, amen. However, he continues, or this article continues. 
The Boy Who Came Back From Heaven was first published in 2010 and told of a 2004 auto accident which left Malarkey in a coma. According to the book, co-written by Alex's father, Kevin, he had visions of angels and of meeting Jesus. In 2014, Tyndale reissued The Boy, which on the cover includes the billing, A True Story. As reported by Nielsen BookScan, which tracks around 85% of the print market, this book has sold 120,000 copies. People want to know. So they buy anything and everything and buy into anything and everything on this topic. The facts of the boy who came back from heaven have long been disputed in the Christian community, which has challenged reports of divine visions in Malarkey's book and other bestsellers, such as Todd Burpo's Heaven is for Real. <clears throat> goes on to tell how one religious organization passed a resolution declaring that the sufficiency of biblical revelation over subjective experiential explanations to guide one understanding of the truth about heaven and hell. In other words, they're saying, look, you only need the Bible. And again, I would say, amen. <clears throat> one of the leading critics of the book is Ben Malarkey's mother, Beth. In April of 2014, she wrote a blog saying that the book's success had been both puzzling and painful to watch and that she believed Alex, her son, had been exploited. She said, I could talk about how much it has hurt my son tremendously and even make financial statements public that would prove he's not received monies from the book nor have a majority of his needs been funded by it, she wrote. She goes on from there. It says, what I have walked through with Alex over the past nine years has nearly broken me personally and spiritually. I have wept so deeply for what I watched my children go through been made aware of how ignorant I was on some things, how selfish I was, and how biblically illiterate I was, which allowed me to be deceived. This is the boy's own mother. Tyndale Publishers, founded in 1962. Its notable publications include the multi-million selling Left Behind series of the 90s and 2000s by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, and the Living Bible, a paraphrased edition of Tyndale founder Kenneth Taylor that has sold tens of millions of copies over the last 50 years. That was the article that appeared in Tulsa World. Underlining to you again that people are interested in this topic, they want to know. But if you know anything about the Living Bible paraphrase or the Left Behind series, you'll know that there's just as many anti-biblical statements and sentiments, impossibilities according to the Bible, in those things as with these other two books mentioned earlier in the article. So, Having established just a lot of interest and a lot of error, what exactly does happen after we leave this earth, after we die, according to the author of life? What does happen? I want to begin to, this morning with a passage out of 1 Thessalonians 4, if you'd turn there with me. I don't claim to have all the answers on this, but I know that God does. And so we're going to look at a partial picture, at least this morning, and See where that takes us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is a passage that is often read at memorial services. It's a beautiful passage. Absolutely beautiful passage. It's brimming with hope. It's brimming with comfort. It's brimming with help for the bereaved. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13. Paul writes to the Church of Christ in 1st century Thessalonica. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, 
concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Paul said, I don't want you to sorrow for those who, who have died. He says in verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus, those who are in Christ, that is. For this we say, verse 15, to you by the word of the Lord. Paul says, I want you to understand this is God speaking. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. He wanted them to understand that, that all of their brethren who were, who were dying as a, as a result largely of the first century persecution, that, that it wasn't hopeless. What they were doing according to the Lord, there were guarantees here. Now, as we read that and we consider that text to begin with, we know that when the trumpet call events, and I, the trumpet call is, is, is outlined here, when those events occur from verse 16, it will not be our earthly, physical, corruptible bodies that will be raised, but we will have been instantaneously changed. We will have incorruptible, eternal bodies. Say, how do you know that? Well, I know that because of what Paul himself said. I know that because John alluded to it in 1 John 3 and verse 2. I know that Paul explains it in places like Philippians 3.21 and 1 Corinthians 15. And I know that Jesus himself alluded to it in John 5. Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. I know that it's going to be a different body because of the word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's begin at verse 35. We know that on that last day when the trumpet sounds as, as Paul illustrated it, that we're going to have different bodies. He says in verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 15, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases and to each seed its own body. So he's making the point that look, what you put in the ground ain't what you're gonna bring up. It's gonna be different. Doesn't mean it's not gonna bring forth after its own kind. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There's one glory of the sun, another of the moon, another of the stars. One star differs from another in glory. He says it's the same way, or so also, is the resurrection of the dead. <clears throat> the body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. See, there's the difference. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Paul makes it real clear. 
He goes on to say, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Watch this. I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. We're not taking these mortal bodies with us to the heavenly aspect of the kingdom. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall all sleep. <clears throat> we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, for we shall be changed. Paul couldn't have been any clearer about that. For this corruption must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. When this corruptible is put on incorruption, this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? So Paul explains, I know it's a lengthy reading, and I appreciate your patience. Paul explains that we're going to have a different body. And as I said, John alludes to this as well. And Jesus, in John 5, 28 and 9, has something interesting to say about that, if you'll turn there with me. John 5, look at verses 28 and 9. Again, talking about what's going to happen at, at the, the great judgment day, as it were, the last trumpet, call it what you will. John 5, 28 and 9. Jesus himself said, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. Come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now, so we understand, or at least we have a picture. I'm not sure all of us fully understand it. I don't. But we have this picture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16, what's going to happen at the end. But what the focus of the sermon is this morning is what happens between the time you take your last breath here and that time when what we commonly refer to as the second coming happens and we rise from the grave. What happens in between those two things? What happens? Well, that is a question that we will seek to answer with this morning's lesson. Will our souls sleep, as some say? Will they be unconscious? Will our spirits be annihilated? Will we be reincarnated, as some religious groups teach, and, and keep coming back in the form of another and another to finally try to perfect this, this process of being perfected, first of all, let me say, that's not going to happen, okay? We know that's not going to happen. We know reincarnation's not going to happen. We know it very simply, two verses, Hebrews 9, 27 and 8. It's as simple as that. I studied with <clears throat> at least one gentleman who believed in this reincarnation process, and for obvious reasons, he wasn't quite sure what to do with Hebrews 9:27 and 8. 9:27 and 8 is really clear. Here, here it is. It says this. And as it 
is appointed for man to die once. We're not going to die, be raised, die, raised, die, raised, die, raised, die, raised, die, raised, back and forth and, and reincarnate. It's not going to happen. And as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this, the judgment. There you got it. Die once, we're not, we're not coming back reincarnated. But after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Are you waiting for Jesus? I love that verse. He's coming again, brethren. He dealt with sin the first time. This time, he's going to take with him his saved. So we know that reincarnation is not a reality. And as we talk about what happens, perhaps the greatest insight gained from Scripture could be that found in Luke chapter 16, the account of Jesus, of the rich man and Lazarus. Please turn there. Luke 16, there's a, there's a lot of insight, application to be drawn from Luke 16 on, on this situation that we're discussing this morning. Luke 16, Look at verse 19. I know we're familiar with it, but consider. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son, Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. So we see this picture of the Hadean world. We see this place in Abraham's bosom or, or nearby, close by to Abraham, Abraham the righteous. And we see that there's this group of people here, and then we see there's this, we're going to see there's this great chasm between, and then there's this other group of people, and, and those in, in, for lack of a better term, the top section of Hades, as it were, the Hadean world, those there are, are in this, this wonderful place next to Abraham, but those, those others who have, who have not lived for God and, and done God's will, they're in this place of, of torment and, and fire. This is not hell. This is not heaven and hell. This is Hades. There's a huge difference, as we're going to see. So the first thing we need to understand is this. At the moment we take our last breath, the moment we take our last breath, our eternal spirits leave our earthly bodies. Ecclesiastes 12.7 says, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. When we take our last breath, our spirit leaves our body. For those of you taking notes, you could notice examples of this in Genesis 35. 16 through 19, and 1 Kings 17, 17 through 22. We're studying James on Wednesday night, and, and James 2 and verse 26 explains to us that, that the term death is simply the definition. It's just a definition of the state of the body after the spirit 
or soul has left. It is the separation of the spirit from the body. That's, all, that's what it is. We all know what the word death in the Bible means, right? Simply means separation. That's what it means, separation. Now, this can mean a spiritual separation, such as we see in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, and Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. It can be a, a spiritual separation. We, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, right? Ephesians 2, we were dead in them. What were we? We were separated from God by them. That's what it means. That's what death is, okay? And there's also physical death, like we see in John 11 and verse 14 with Lazarus. And I, I wanted to bring an illustration, because as I said in the adult class this morning, people remember illustrations, especially if I get this dirty charcoal-covered glove on this white shirt. But anyway, see, that give you all something to giggle about, and then you'll really remember it, right? I'm not going to do that if I can help it, okay? Glove. So if this is our human body, my hand is what's making everything work, right? Right? Right. And so death is simply when the spirit leaves the body, like, like a hand leaving a glove. Our spirit is separated from our body, Ecclesiastes 12, 7, leaving the body lifeless without, without the spirit within it, without our spirit within it. We could, we could go through a number of illustrations, a banana and appealings, anything like that. And, and we know that we have to leave that earthly body behind. Why? Because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We just read that, right? In 1 Corinthians 15, we can't get there like this. We can't get there like this. The spirit's got to come out of the body. So <clears throat> Hades, that, that's what happens when, when we take our last breath. Spirit out of the body, okay? Second thing. Hades, what I call the Hadean world, Hades, refers to that region or destination of our departed spirits, where the spirit goes when it comes out of the body, that destination where our spirits go. But Hades is only temporary. It's an intermediate place. That's what we need to remember. It's intermediate. It's like a, like a waiting place, as it were, if you want to call it that. It's the intermediate or temporary state between death, when, when our spirits come out of our body, and that last day when the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ shall rise, in between those two, this is the destination of our spirits. Now, despite the fact, there, there's, one, there, there's an issue in the Old King James. The Old King James Version does not differentiate between the temporary Hades and eternal hell. It uses the term hell all the time, most of the time doesn't differentiate. Brethren, Hades does not denote the grave, nor is Hades permanent. It's not the permanent location of our souls. It's not. It is the intermediate state between our decease and our resurrection on the last day for judgment. Okay? Hades comes from a Greek word, hado. H-A-D-O is the way we translate it. And that word means, Hades means all receiving. That's what Hado means, all receives. Not just the bad folks, not just the good folks, not just the Christian and the non-Christian. Hades is all receiving. There's, there's, there's Abraham's bosom part and then there's the torment part with the great chasm in between. It's, it's all receiving, that's what the word means. And this idea of a temporary all receiving state 
is not new to the New Testament. You know what the Old Testament word is, right? The, the Hebrew Old Testament equivalent of the Greek New Testament Hades is Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. Sheol refers to the same place, it's just a different language, Hebrew. The Hebrew word Sheol occurs 67 times in 64 verses in the Old Testament. You know what Sheol means? The place of the dead, real simple. The place of the dead, that's what it means. Good, the bad. Oh, is it tempting to use an old Clint Eastwood title, but I won't. The good, the bad. The place of the dead. Not the grave, but of those spirits who have departed from this earthly life. And in the Old Testament, that term Sheol is used of both the good and the bad. For example, in Isaiah 5, 11 through 15, Sheol is used of the wicked dead. The good and godly dead, Sheol is used as their destination as well. For Jacob in Genesis 37, 35. For David in Psalm 18, 1 through 5. And for Hezekiah in Isaiah, chapter 35, 38 and verse 10. So again, it's all receiving, Sheol, same thing. All receiving, both the good and the bad. Psalm 89 and verse 48 in the English Standard Version says, what man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Notice it's all encompassing, both the good and man. What, what man can live and not see death? Good, bad, doesn't matter. What man can't? For none can escape the power of Sheol. Again, it's all receiving. So, in Luke chapter 16, where we just read about the rich man and Lazarus, we see this double nature, if you want to call it that, of Hades as well. We see a place of great torments, where the wicked and the ungodly and the disobedient have gone, and they're separated from those who are in paradise, or called Abraham's bosom, where the God-fearing, obedient, and forgiven have gone. This is the paradise, this, this good part of Hades, Abraham's bosom, this is the paradise that Jesus said he would take the thief to the cross on that day in Luke chapter 24, in verse 43. Remember he said to the, what he said to the thief? He said, today you'll what? You'll be with me in paradise. Didn't say he was going to heaven. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Good side of Hades. Other, ver other terms for that same place are pleasure park, paradise, Eden. According to the evangelism handbook, Abraham's bosom is a place of joy, a place of comfort, a place of good things, a place of God's favor, a place of rest. And souls, here's the deal. Souls are in a conscious state there. Could the rich man see Lazarus in Abraham's bosom? Could he see him? Did he know who he was? Conscious, it's not unconscious. Our spirits are there. They're not unconscious. They're not obliterated. They're not, they're not oblivious to everything they could see. And in Hades, you can tell if you're there what's going on. This is one of the messages that we get out of this, and that should answer a lot of questions about some of those things we often talk about, about when we die. Jesus went there with the thief to Abraham's bosom, where Moses and Elijah were, and how do we know that? How do, how do we know that Jesus went to Hades? How do we, because the Bible says so. Acts chapter two, turn to me there, verse 31. 
It implies he went there. It does not say exactly that he went there, but it certainly does imply it. I don't know how you can imply anything else from this verse. Acts 2 and verse 31. Peter talking about the resurrection of Jesus, about all that Jesus went through after his crucifixion. It says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 31. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ that his soul was not left in Hades. Do you see it? You can't be left somewhere that you weren't. You can only be left somewhere where you were. His soul wasn't left there. What does that imply? That's where he was. He just wasn't left there. His soul wasn't left in Hades. But it was there. We read in John chapter 20, verses 11 and following, about Mary Magdalene's encounter with Jesus at the tomb on that Sunday morning. John chapter 20, verses 11 through 17. And, and you recall how that story went. She's outside the tomb weeping. Jesus is gone. Jesus speaks to her and she thinks that it's the gardener. You remember the story, right? And, and when she understands that it's Jesus, what does he tell her? He says, verse 17, he says, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my father. Jesus, after being put to death on Friday morning, or being crucified Friday morning, dying Friday afternoon around three, going through Saturday, in the wee hours of Sunday morning, look what he said, he said, I have not yet ascended to my father. Jesus didn't go to heaven during that time. He said, I haven't been there yet. Don't stop clinging to me. I still got to go there. I got work to do is the implication, but I haven't been there yet. Well, where was he? Well, he was in Hades, Acts 2 and verse 31. He, he was there. That's where he went. Now, evidence, I'm not going to teach this as an absolute fact. I know that there are those who have said this, and I'll tell you why they said it, and it makes sense to me, but I'm going to put this out there because I want you to think this morning. Evidence would seem to suggest, biblical evidence, I'll point you to four different references here in a minute. Biblical evidence would suggest that after Jesus' resurrection, he took the good part of Hades with him to the heavenly realms, which would widen that chasm even further. But, well, how do people come to that conclusion that, that that's very likely? Because the Bible doesn't come around and say he took the top part of Hades and went to heaven with it. It doesn't say that. So how do we come to that even thinking about that? Well, I, I want you to think about this. First, first text that would at least begin to lead us in that way is Ephesians 4. Tell me when you go home today you won't have something to think about, right? Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verses 7 through 10. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, we know that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus changed everything, didn't it? It changed everything. It changed the covenants. It changed the Gentiles' relationship with God. It destroyed Satan's power over death. 
It expanded or extended the kingdom to now have a, a physical, earthly aspect to it. So why not, if it changed all those things, the location of the good and godly dead? They're still in Hades, but that whole top part, for lack of a better term, I'm trying to put this into human terms, and it's not always easy, okay? Why not that he took that group with him or that top section of Hades? And I'll tell you why. After the Lord's resurrection, of course we know in Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 through 53, about all the, the, the dead coming out of their graves and going into the holy city and all that, but after the Lord's resurrection from the dead, this is key. Instead of talking about going down to Sheol, like they did in the Old Testament, all the verses talk about going up to be with the Lord. Now we know that doesn't mean heaven yet. We know that that's not the final, ju final judgment hadn't come yet. We'll get there. But all of the verses after that talk about going up to be with the Lord or up to paradise, that sort of thing. For example, after his resurrection, follow me here, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to give you four of them here real quick. Notice in every one of these that even though final judgment has not occurred yet, Revelation 20, we'll get there, even though final judgment hasn't occurred, these people that have died, these good righteous after the resurrection are said to have gone up or be with the Lord. So if he's at the right hand of the throne of God interceding for us, how can they be with him if they ain't in heaven? Unless he took top part of Hades with him. Consider. 2 Corinthians 5 beginning at verse 6. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Okay, absent from the body. We are anxious for that time when our spirits shed the body, and what does he say we're going to be then? With the Lord, right? That's what he says. Consider another, 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4. Paul writes, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I, I don't know, or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven, and I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. He was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for man to utter. In this context, paradise is up. Doesn't say heaven. Consider with me Philippians 1. Philippians 1, verses 21 through 23. What does Paul say? He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor, yet what I shall choose I can't tell. I'm hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. He said, I know when I leave here, I'm gonna to go to be with the Lord. But according to Revelation 20, that we're not getting into heaven yet. And finally, I won't turn and read there, but if you make making notes, you can. Revelation chapter six, verses nine through 11, in Paul's vision, 
of what's going to happen in his visions that God gave him, what we commonly refer to as the Revelation. In Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11, talks about those souls that are under the altar crying out to God. This is what John saw in his vision. So at the very least, they're in the close proximity of God. So here's the bottom line. There are those that will tell you Hades is just like it's described in Luke. Bad part torment, good part paradise, great chasm in the middle, there it is. There are those that will tell you that the Hadean world was separated and the good part of it, based on those four texts, five texts I just gave you, that, that's gone to be closer to Jesus. Personally, here's the kicker. I'm not completely knowledgeable on this and I don't know if the good part went to be with him or not but I know this I want to be in a good part no matter where it is don't you I don't care where it is I want to be with Jesus I want to be in paradise I want to be there with with Abraham and and David and and I want to know that when I when I come to this Hadean world I want to know that I'm not that I'm not in that part that was ungodly that was disobedient to God that didn't have the grace and the cleansing of God I want to know that I'm with God that, wherever it is, that's where I want to be. I'm not going to be worried about GPS when that day comes, okay? I'm just saying. All I'm going to be worried about is am I with God? The day will come when the Lord descends from heaven with a shout, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. All of those disembodied spirits who are in the Hadean world on the good side of it, the Hadean pleasure park, wherever it is, as pure and perfect and peaceful as it is, all of those disembodied spirits will take on a new, heavenly, incorruptible body according to the text that we read earlier on. This idea is not new to scripture either. Isaiah 26, 19 in the New American Standard Version says your dead will live their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. So this is not a new idea to the New Testament. Daniel 2 in verse 12 says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. You see, we have a picture in Revelation 20, please turn there, of, of the final day, the, the great day judgment, that day we sing about, there's a great day coming and, and all of that when we all will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Look at Revelation 20. Notice verses 10 through 15. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. There was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. Hades is going to be emptied out. And they were judged, each one according to his works. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. There's no longer any need. Listen, when we all come before God for final judgment, is there going to be a need for earthly death anymore? No, because there ain't going to be anybody here. 
Is there going to be a need for Hades, this temporary holding place? No, because the final judgment will have been passed. This is the second death, and anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. As I think about how to describe all of this, find an illustration that works. Let's take just for a minute the bad side of Hades, torment. Until Judgment Day, as it were, the, the bad side of Hades is sort of like a holding cell for those criminals who've already received a verdict of guilty, but they're just awaiting final sentencing. You know how that works, right? You commit a terrible crime, you, you go in, you're found guilty of the crime, and then you're usually put back in, a, in the jail for a month or two until the judge sentences you, right? Pretty much the way that works? Well, that's the way this works. The guilty, those who, who are not pure in God's eyes because of the blood of Christ or those under the old covenant who were righteous through what God set up there, they're like right now waiting final sentencing for the guilt. They know they're guilty like, like the rich man. They, they know because of what they're going through. But Hades, for those who belong to God, that's closer or appears to be closer to Jesus than it used to be, you know what, I, you know what I'd think of that as based on everything we've studied? You got heaven, you got, you got this, this, this beautiful palace, we'll just say, for, for lack of a, a better understanding. And right outside of this, this heavenly palace, and we're gonna enter through the gates and all of that, right outside of that, there's this beautiful park, this pristine park. And you know that if you're in this park, that you're gonna you're going wind up living in the palace later on. And that's the best way for me to get my mind around if indeed this top part of Hades is, is closer to God, it's right outside of heaven. And, and then comes this, this final judgment. But you know as you're in this place with Abraham and, and, and that thief and, and all of those good and godly and righteous people, you know what your final judgment is going to be. I want to be in that number, wherever it is. In the evangelism handbook, it says, and I, and I this, just think about this. It has been truly amazing to me what people have done to prepare for their future. Life insurance, last will and testament, DNRs, do not resuscitate, obviously. Arrangements with a funeral home, trusts for our children and grandchildren. A cabinet maker built a casket for himself and displayed it on his front porch. <laughs> How foolish it would be to have prepared for all these things and have neglected to prepare our souls for heaven. And that's the bottom line, isn't it? That's the bottom line of this whole thing is how foolish it is to prepare for life and to prepare for all of those other things in the end of this life and yet not prepare our souls for heaven. So often in the scriptures we're told we need to do that. Psalm 39, four through six says, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient or, or temporary I am. Behold, you have made my days like handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. Psalm 90, verses 10 through 12, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years. Or if due to strength, 80 years. 
Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, and soon it's gone and we fly away. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. That's the bottom line this morning. Be ready for heaven. In Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26, it says, He said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? From what I understand in the scriptures, when we take our last breath, our spirit departs our bodies. We go to one side or the other of Hades, wherever they're located and however far apart they are. And we will be there, our spirits, until the last day when the trumpet sounds, as Paul puts it, and we come before God for final judgment. And as we go to heaven, we will have these new and, and glorious, eternal, incorruptible bodies. That's what happens when we die, as far as I understand it, according to those texts. But before we close, I want you to consider something. Turn back with me to Luke 16, would you please? And if you've never taken the time to really study this out, it bears doing, believe me. I didn't finish this for purpose, but I'm gonna just before we close. Luke 16, right where we left off. We know from verse 26 that there's a great chasm fixed between the two sides so that those who wanna pass back and forth can't. But then notice what the rich man says. He says, then I beg you therefore, Father, you would send him, that is, Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. He, he didn't want his family to be where he was. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, of course he's talking across this great chasm, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Jesus came back from the dead, and that hasn't caused everybody to repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Is it true today that even though Jesus rose from the dead, there are those that are not persuaded? Is, isn't that true? That's what it says. But what I want you to notice here is what was the concern of the rich man? He said, hey, I got people I love that I, I don't want them here. I don't want them to come here. Now, is it possible that those on the good side also have family and say, hey, I want them here? Well, maybe, seeing how Hebrews 12:1 says we have such a great cloud of witnesses, but, but here's the thing. You need to be sure where you're going. You need to be absolutely sure where you're going because you don't know when you're going. God gave his son to make it possible for us to be cleansed in the blood so that we could go to heaven, so that when our spirits depart our bodies, we could be in Abraham's bosom, this, this good side, this, this pleasure park, and, and not have to spend all that time like the rich man in torment because, listen, when final judgment comes, the good is going to get better and the bad is going to get worse. 
I read that about torment and I think, well, a person who's convicted of a crime in a, in a county jail that is, that is convicted of a crime that winds up in a federal prison, is he worse off after he's received the final judgment? Is he worse off than he was just in hell? Yeah. And heaven's going to be better than paradise. And I don't want a single soul. I don't want a single soul to miss heaven. If you're not a Christian this morning, you need to be ready because you don't know when the time is coming and God is just waiting for you to put on Christ in baptism, to have your sins forgiven. And if you've done that every day, we have this great cloud of witnesses and God wants you to live for him. So there's no doubt in your mind where you're going. And if you've got people that you want in heaven, you need to tell them while you can. The rich man couldn't, he, he was beyond helping them at that point. Don't, don't wait till you're beyond helping people that you love to find Jesus and to find the truth and go to heaven. Tell them now while you got today. Don't wait till you can't do anything about it. Right now, you can do something about it. Once you take your last breath and your spirit leaves your body, you can't do anything about it. Tell them today about how awesome Jesus Christ is while you can. If you're here today and you'd be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, to make absolutely sure and have that confidence that only his blood can give you will do that. If you need the prayers of the church that you will help somebody else to find the way to be stronger in Christ, anything we can do to get you closer to Jesus so you can know where you're going when the time comes. Right now, come on down. Let us, let us help you as we stand and sing.